Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Typically in, these, uh, in this series, as we've been working our way through the New Testament 90 days, uh, what we try to do is either take a big picture um, overview of something, uh, kind of a, a theme there in a, in a big chunk of scripture, or to take a particular passage. Today's is a particular passage. Uh, you know, and as we plan this sermon series, I, I thought about, you know, we've, there's some great stuff in the, uh, in the parts of Luke that we've read so far. There's Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man and all this kind of stuff. Uh, there's Bartimaeus, uh, where Jesus stopped. I just love that phrase always catches me. And Jesus stopped. The, Bartimaeus called out and Jesus stopped. That's just profound to me. So good. Um, and there's others. Uh, but the, the one I think, uh, that is the craziest thing. I mean, really is it here in Luke chapter 16. So we, I started working on it, started studying this week, opened on Thursday, opened up a commentary. If you're not familiar with what a commentary is, it's a big, thick book written by somebody much, much smarter than me um, that says, hey, here's kind of what the text means, and don't forget this, and don't miss this, this kind of thing. Open up um, to that commentary to, about Luke 16, and here's what he said. This is the most confusing and complex parable that Jesus has taught. Awesome. <laughs> Luke chapter 16, this is where we are. By the way, just context-wise, Luke 15, the end of Luke 15 is the, is the prodigal son, like the most beloved parable that Jesus tells, then flips over to the most confusing parable that he tells. Luke 16, here we go. He also said to his disciples, Jesus did, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. We'll talk about how in just a moment, but wasting his possessions. Verse two, and he called them and he said to him, this is, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? What shall I do since my uh, master is taking away the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with uh, their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Everybody good? Thanks, let's pray. I know, I'm just like, holy smokes, that's a confusing, complex parable. Yes, everybody can agree on that. Um, I, to, tomorrow, I may feel differently uh, about what I'm about to say. Um, next year, I may think differently th uh, than what I'm about to say today. This is what I think this parable means and the point he's trying to make. Let's talk about the problem first, okay? Here, here's, here's the problem. Th this guy, in fact, the heading over Luke 16 for me says the parable of the dishonest manager. This guy is dishonest, but, but it, what is the nature of this? And there's two kind of lines of thought. I won't bore you uh, with all the details and arguments thereof, but um, one line of thought is the guy's embezzling. He's skimming off the top. He charges 25. If you uh, owed him 25 bushels, uh, you bought 25 bushels. He charges you for 25 and he only receives the money for 24 and then cooks the books. Okay. Um, it, the, the, the other way uh, is he is inflating his commission. 
He's, there, there's a contract price, 10%. Some of you are in sales of either goods or services. And you've got a contract price, it's this plus 10 or whatever your number is. And he says, hey, for the oil, we'll do plus 12. For the other, we'll do plus 15. For this thing over here, wheat, we'll do plus 50, whatever it may be, right? And so he's changing the contract price. And how that hurts um, the master is, is that now his prices are different than the market allows. And he would be possibly losing business. Uh, He could be skimming off the top. Uh, He's played his commission. I think it's the latter of those two. Either way, though, just here we go. Back in verse one. uh, I'm sorry, verse two. Uh, And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be a manager. So there has been a moment where somebody has caught wind of something that has gone on. And now in business language, what is he about to experience? He is about to experience an audit. Anybody really excited about that? It's tax season, people. Nobody wants to hear the word audit, right? But here we are. This is what this guy is going through. And because he has been dishonest in his dealings, he is about to then reap, uh, reap what he has sown. So I, I really do think it's not so much embezzling. Why? Uh, probably not this. There's not really forgiveness for embezzlement. You either go to jail or if you're embezzling from uh, the mob or somebody, you end up, you know, in a river. I don't know where they end up these days, but... You, it's probably the latter where he's kind of inflating his commission, changing the, contact, uh, the contract prices. He doesn't deny or defend. He just knows that he's busted, man. He's looking for his passport. He is Googling right now what countries do not have extradition treaties. I mean, the guy knows that he is in trouble. And, and here's, here's where he shakes down, verse 3. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I know I'm busted here. I am not strong enough to dig. So my body cannot handle physical labor. And if he has been a manager and now is going to physical labor, he's probably going to go to work for people that he was cheating in the first place. My body can't handle it. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I am ashamed to beg. My ego can't handle the begging part. I can't do that. So he comes, up, he comes up with a plan. He, he's he's going to make a move here. He actually makes three moves, and I think this is kind of the heart uh, of this parable. Let's talk about the three moves that he makes, and then we'll hear Jesus speak to us about those three things also. Number one, he, he starts thinking about his future. Verse four, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Thinking about the future for him means he knows what he cannot do and what he cannot be, Okay. Like, he, he knows, I, I can't dig. I can't do it. And I won't beg. He knows what he cannot be. He knows the situation, it can't turn out like this. But what he's unclear about um, and, and what he's hoping for is to get a sense of what can be. That, that's why he's thinking about the future. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He, he's working on this. Folk, church family, let's just pause here and say, if all you have is what is not or what cannot be, then uh, you'll be stuck. What he's thinking about is his future in light of his needs. And it's that need, it's the identification of his need that is driving, if you will, or invoking his action. And we'll talk about what the action is in just a second. But it's his need that is invoking the action. I say that because sometimes in our lives, there are moments when this is not really the, the, the driving point here. But as we think about the future, we become paralyzed because all we think about is we cannot be this. We cannot do this. 
We, we, we know what cannot be. But in light of the need, it can invoke our action and we can start doing something. And it's way, way easier to turn a car that's moving than a car that's standing still, right? So, so we let that, we, we take a step, even if we're unclear or uncertain about how that's going to shake out. It's his need that invokes his action. What action did he take? Look at verse 5. <clears throat> so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Verse 6, uh, he's a uh, hundred measures of oil. He said to take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. He said to another, how much do you owe? A uh, hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill, write 80. He was practicing generosity in the present. So what was his action? This was, this was the step right here. He was unclear on the outcome. There wasn't really a guarantee, but this is a step. I'm going to practice generosity right here um, in the present. What did that generosity look like? It looked like cutting out his commission. Not only the extra that he was charging everybody else, but also his own commission. Um, and so what, what he was owed is what he surrendered in addition to all the extra profit that he had been taking. A temporary disadvantage, what he was hoping for in that temporary disadvantage was a longer-term advantage. Again, thinking about his future, practicing his step, his action, was practicing generosity in the present, cutting out his commission. Now, if you're on the receiving end of that, if, if, you, if you owed 100 and now you owe 50, are you excited about this? This is not rhetorical, people. Anybody, I, because we have done this before, uh, we, we've had medical bills, you know, with our crazy kids and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, hey, uh, they call you up and they're like, hey, little Mr. Anderson, um, you know, you, you owe $25,463. But today, if you pay in full, uh, or excuse me, if you pay, uh, like right now, we'll only charge you 1200 for that. And I'm like, sold. Anybody with me? Anybody have this happen before? We're like, yes, I'll take that deal right now. But this is that moment for them. Where they're like, hey, here's this inflated price, thank you so much, but now we're knocking it down to what it actually costs us if you'll pay it and done, right? And what happens is when he kind of cuts himself out of that, when he kind of disadvantages himself, um, uh, hoping for this longer term advantage, it not only is going to help him, but also the, the manager's surrender, if you will, of, of that uh, meant the master's cause was actually advanced. He is more, they're more likely to pay in that moment. Which do you want to pay, 50 or 100? I'll take 50. Okay, great. It's what you owed really to the master anyway. He wasn't really helping his master. The master's the one who owned it all anyway. But his interests, the master's interests were advanced. His cause was advanced. His interests were moved forward because of this. And then, verse 8, the master, but because he thought about the future, because he practiced generosity in the present, he made that commitment, which is the third move. And the master, the result of this, the master commended, verse 8, the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's a weird word, but it's the word. It's a prudence, thoughtfulness. His commitment led to, if you will, commendation from the master. Like the, the master said, hey, man, this is good thing. You should have been this strategic in the first place. We wouldn't have had this problem. Nonetheless, this is where it ended up for him. And, and the, the reason why I, th I think it's important, it wasn't because of his dishonest, dishonesty that he was commended, but because he was prudent, because he was thoughtful, because he was shrewd in how he was doing it. There was, there was a strategy, so to speak. Anybody a Monopoly player in here? A few of you, good deal. 
everybody wants the home run, right? Like there's kind of this, if you're not, the, mo- the most expensive property on, the, on uh, the Monopoly board is, everybody, Boardwalk, right? And everybody's like, dude, if you could get a hotel on Boardwalk, bar, 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 you're done, right? Game over in basically one roll. That's true. But you, they have to land on that particular square, and you have to, you know, be able to afford it to build a hotel and blah, 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 right? This is how this goes. Maybe a more thoughtful strategy, depending upon if you are in this, is on the other side of the board. You know, like where that uh, ugly burnt orange color and the purple things are, right? Uh, and, and you actually build out there hotels and houses. It's way cheaper property on that side. And there's like a whole run of properties that they can land on. And so you're not taking 2000 bucks at a time. You're taking like 600 at a time, but you still are going to bleed them dry. Yes, because this is the point of monopoly is to take out the people around you. Okay. If, if you're not a Monopoly person, anybody jumped into Wordle? Come on, fess up. Yes. If you're not sure, New York Times, it started in London, I think. A guy was doing it for his fiance or something, but uh, New York Times bought it. And uh, you got five, five squares, you fill them in, and it tells you if the letters are uh, right, uh, right and in the right place, right but in the wrong place, or just wrong all the way around. And, 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 I've started this even like in the past maybe week or so with my 15-year-old. We have a little competition. You got it on the third time this time. I haven't done it yet today. Please don't tell me what the word is unless you want me to cheat and beat my 15-year-old, which would be fine with me. So (laughs) you've got a starting word though, yeah? Everybody has a starting word. Lynn, what's yours? Just so I know. Ratio. You pick, up, you pick up three vowels right there, the R and the T. That's a good, that's a good. See, she's got a strategy. And some of you are like, that's way better than the one I start with. You're welcome, everybody, okay? You've got a strategy for this so that you figure out, um, what, what, like, how in the world am I going to work this thing down? And you kind of work your way through. And blah, blah, blah. This, you're, you've got a strategy. You're being prudent. You're being thoughtful. You're committed to beating whoever you're playing, be it your daughter or somebody else. You're being prudent and thoughtful. This is what Jesus is after here, to be prudent and to be thoughtful. This is how he says, look at the end of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Here's Jesus. Here's what he says. This imaginary guy um, is more thoughtful about his imaginary future than real people are about their real future. That's what he's saying. Sons of this world are, are, are... Far, far more thoughtful about this. They, they, are sh- they are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Church family, we are very real people. And we have a very real future. And we need to be thoughtful about this. Jesus doesn't want the imaginary guy in the imaginary parable to outthink us. He doesn't want the imaginary guy to have a better strategy for an imaginary future than we have. We real people have for a real future. So how do we do that? How, how do we, how do we do this? Well, I think those three things are actually really helpful for us. Number one, think about the future. Look at verse nine. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. If, if you and I are going to hear the invitation of Jesus today, For us to think about the future, to be thoughtful, prudent, shrewd about our very real future. Think about our future together. Let's think about it. That's that's number one. Uh, The riches riches of the world, it says, they will fail. 
That's what he says. Make friends up for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, not if it fails, church family, when. Anything that you're holding on to that you consider a resource right now, it's going down eventually. It really will. Your strength, it goes. Um, your, your wit and wisdom, uh, that, that goes. Your prowess, it goes. Your uh, financial resources, or otherwise, it will all go. It, when it fails. When it fails, not if. Nothing that you are holding on to lasts forever. But he says to use that, so to speak, to make for yourselves friends. So, so leverage what you do have to make for yourselves friends. And so what are good lasting investments? You see them on the screen there. Um, the Bible talks about maybe six or seven things, kind of depending upon how you cut them up. Um, they, they fall broadly into three big categories. What are lasting investments? What are things that last forever? Number one, your relationship with God. Church family, there is no greater investment that you can make than your relationship with God. Marriage matters. Yes, invest in it. Your relationship with God. Kids matter. Yes, your relationship with God is even greater. I mean, on and on and on we could go. Invest in your relationship with God. Spend time with Him. It will last forever. Eternal life, as a matter of fact, is defined according to John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, Eternal life is a relationship with God. Invest in that. Secondly, time in the Word of God. Time in the Word. There's a reason why every week we encourage you. If you haven't started, start. If you've fallen behind, just jump in. Because time in the Word of God is a lasting investment. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It'll be true today. It'll, it was true yesterday. Tomorrow, it's going to be true. No matter what the headlines say, no matter what phone call comes in, no matter what email shows up, no matter what cuts loose or doesn't cut loose in your world, the word of God is going to prove true. So invest in it by spending time in it. And lastly, sowing into other people. The, the people that you're sitting next to, look at them. Look at them. I mean, for real, look at them. They'll still be around 100 years from now. They may not look like they look right now. Some of you are really glad for that. Don't, don't. But they'll still be around. Their, their bodies will give out, that's for sure. But they will still be around. So sow into, sow into people. Those are lasting investments. And then I want to talk for just a moment about guaranteed investment, but let me set it up this way. Um, if I, let's a little quiz here, pop quiz, participation quiz. If I gave you $1,000 um, in, in 2011 and you stuck it in this kind of weird startup company, dude had a weird name. He said he was going to change the world by inventing an electric car, Tesla. You know how much that 1000 bucks would be worth right now? Anybody, any guess? Any guesses? 120,000. So not quite 350. 120,000. I mean, that's a pretty good turnaround, yeah? 120% in 11 years. But it's only been 11 years, or, you know, 11 and a half, whatever. So, I mean, you got some ways to go. Yeah, that's good. If you had taken that same $1,000 in 1997, invested it in this little book company that wanted to sell books on the internet, you heard of them? You got four packages on your front porch right now from them. All smiling at you because you spent money with them. If you had invested in Amazon in 1997 when it went public, $1,000, you know what you'd be worth today? 
That, excuse me, that thousand, you know what that thousand would be worth today? Any guesses? Not quite that much. 2.34 though. Thousand dollars, 2.34 million, you'd be in pretty good shape. Now, that's, those are thousand dollar investments. Let's take a much, much smaller investment because I mean, I don't have thousand dollars just to hand you. A hundred dollars though, what if I, Nate, what if I had handed you a hundred dollars back in, two, I want to make sure I get the date right, in 2010, and you had invested in some little crazy thing. I'm not even sure how all this works, but they, you know, they're going to make some new currency. It's like one world order, book of revelation craziness called Bitcoin. If I had given you a hundred bucks and you had stuck a hundred dollars in Bitcoin in 2010, do you know what you'd be worth today? Any guesses? You, you, you would be one of the richest people in the world worth just a smidge under $8 billion. I mean, that wouldn't be too bad, would it? And everybody in here right this second is thinking, where's the time machine that I can import my... I mean, like back to, to 100 bucks, Bitcoin, da, 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 I don't even understand how it works, but da, 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 $8 billion. That would be, I mean, it's actually 7.96 billion, but what's 40 billion when you got 8 billion? You know what I mean? Like I'm 40 million, 8 billion, whatever, okay? Like who's counting at that point? What I'm saying is we would all go backwards and drop 100 bucks on Bitcoin even though we didn't understand it then and don't understand it now. Please don't come up to me and try to explain it. I don't really care, man. It's crazy. I don't care. It's good. If we could go backwards though, knowing, listen, if we could go backwards knowing what we know now, about the future that was to come, would you make that investment? Of course you would. Church family, standing where we are now, we know what is coming. And so the guaranteed investment is to leverage the thing that God gives us, to leverage the resources that he has entrusted with us today for the sake of what is coming for eternity. This is what he says. Make friends for yourself. By, I mean, just picture the gates of heaven opening wide. You get to walk in and all of a sudden there's a group of people that are like, man, thanks for leveraging. Thanks for leveraging what you were entrusted with for the sake of eternity because I'm here today because of it. Leverage it. Leverage those resources for eternity. How do we practice this, like what do we do in the present here, verse 10? One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in, excuse me, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Let me just ask a couple of questions. When we talk about practicing generosity in the present, why? Why do we do this? Number one, it's all his anyway. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The digital world is his. The physical world is his. There's no place in the universe God can't stick his flag and say, mine, and he'd be right. He made it, it's his. It's all his anyway. Secondly, the, the role that you and I are to play, verse 10, one who is faithful in very little, faithful in much, one who is dishonest in very little, also dishonest in much. The role we play is managers. We're stewards is the old Bible word for it. And the call is just to be a faithful steward. Here's the owner, the, the master, who's entrusting the manager to leverage what he's been entrusted with for the sake of the master's calls. That's, that's the game. We're the ones in the middle. We're the ones in the middle. 
We are managers, and the call is to be faithful. And lastly, it's practice for true riches. Uh, I, just, I point out to you two phrases I don't, I don't want to skip past. At the end of verse 11, I know it says 12 on the screen, but at the end of verse 11, uh, it, it, who, will entrust you, uh, who will entrust to you true riches? And then at the end of verse 12, who will give you that which is your own? He's got two phrases there, parallel phrases back to back. He's trying to say, hey, look, God wants to entrust you with these things to actually hold and own them. This is practice for true riches. What in the world are true riches going to look like? I have no idea. Not a clue. But is God unbelievably good to his people? Is he? Yes. Yes. Does he seem pretty serious about this? Yes. Yes. So if he's serious about it and he's really good, it seems like it's going to be a good deal for me. Yeah? Good deal for you. I don't exactly know what it's going to look like. I won't even try to think about what it may look like. I just know that he said in his goodness and in, again, his serious approach to this, it's practice. This is practice for what's really coming. How then? How, how do we do this? Two ways. I just want to point them to you here. How do we do this? If you get tense about money, when they talk about money in church, just go ahead and tense up for a second and then relax. How do we do this? Number one, um, we talk about here around uh, our church family is tithes and offerings. Tithe, if you're not familiar with that word, um, 10% of your earned income. And some, that's a benchmark, folks. It's a benchmark. Some of us are kind of working our way up to that. We haven't been following Jesus for very long. We're trying to figure this out. We're working our way to that. Some of us, though, we've long gone past that. Good. It's a benchmark. Okay? It's a, it's a carryover, if you will, from the Old Testament. And we, we, uh, we kind of benchmark that to say, man, God, you've entrusted us with so much and we're going to give 10% back. You could ask for 90%. You could ask for 100%. You could kill me right now. Amen. We're going to trust you with this 10% and just show how good you are. And offerings, things over and above that, things where we just get passionate about something and we step into that and say, I want to help in some way. So that's tithes and offerings. Secondly, um, to give time and energy. And for some, this is actually harder. Time and energy. Volunteer. Serve in some capacity. If you want to serve around here, there's, there's kids ministry, preschool ministry, student ministry, other stuff that's happening. There's behind the scenes stuff. There's up front. There's all sorts of stuff where you can step in and make a difference. Time and energy. You can take your phone and put it down. Like, turn it over. Leave it in a drawer. Whatever it may be. Because there's people around you who need your engagement and who need your investment. Um, for some of you, and I said this in the 830, I'm rolling this out right here. For some of you with a few more miles on your tires. Okay? You with me? The, the white wall is not quite as white any longer. For some of you who've been at this a little bit longer, there's a generation here that needs you. There, for some of you who are empty nesters now, there are people with kids who were like, I don't, this phase, man, this phase of my life, I ain't going to make it. And you know what they need? They need somebody to buy them a cup of coffee or buy them enchiladas or pick your favorite thing. You, you, they need somebody to sit down across from them and say, guess what? We live through that phase. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. 
There, there are people who have stepped out and made some risk, who, who've, who've done something, and they need somebody who's been there, somebody who's further down the road, somebody who has some more perspective, somebody who, is got, who has some wisdom to speak to them to go, look, you did this. Good for you. Think about this as you continue forward. They need that person to do that. Church family, there are people in need within our own church family. And it takes somebody with some gray hair, somebody with some creaky joints, somebody with some experience, somebody with some wisdom to step into their world and say, you can do this. Hey, think about this. Have you tried this? Just be encouraged with this, whatever it may be. They need you. They need you. You're not done. You're not done. They need you. Time and energy. Theron Rankin was the president of the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board right as World War II kicked off. I've had this quote on my board for a couple of months now, and I just I can't get past that. We cannot claim great faith and then try to prove it with small actions and small giving. <laughs> We're all about great faith, man. God is so amazing. He's incredible. He's awesome. He's powerful. He's good. He's stunning. He's wonderful. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is just. He is right and he is true. Amen to that. Yeah, over here. Little bitty, little bitty actions. A little bit of get, like, we cannot claim great faith and then try to prove it with something small. We get to step into that. We get to step into that with great actions as well as great leveraging of the resources that he's given us. Last thing, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one, love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. There's a commitment. There's a commitment part of this. What does that look like? It means like you commit your life to him and to him alone. To him and him alone. You can't serve two masters. You can't play both sides. You prioritize him, and then you let him set your priorities. You you cannot have it both ways. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago, but it's 1 John chapter 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father. It's from the world. And this world and its desires are passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You cannot have it both ways. To pursue one corrupts the pursuit of the other. If you, if you go in pursuit of the world, you're corrupting your pursuit of God. You can't have a foot on both sides of this line. To pursue God corrupts your pursuit of the world. Commit your life to him and then let him arrange your commitments. Now, church family, this is what he's wanted from us all along. And that commitment will lead to this kind of entrusting of things to us. By our commitment, we prove, God, we're trustworthy with this. I mean, yes, with money, but time and Um, relationships and everything else, all the other things that we can leverage for this. God wants to entrust us to this. In fact, he wants us to entrust the entire world to us. Don't you remember Genesis 1? When he creates the place, he looks at Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, fish, birds, all that stuff. Like 
Take care of this place. You know what he wants us to do? He wants, this, he wants us to be the kind of people that he can entrust and empower to take care of what he has given us. True riches. Something that we ourselves can own. This is what he wants to do. It starts, though, with that kind of commitment. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, the invitation is very simple. Put your life in his hands. And you think to yourself, I can't do that. I'm not, I'm not dressed for the occasion. Good news, Jesus is the one who provides for you. You don't have to clean yourself up and then come to the party. He invites you to the party and cleans you up along the way, folks. That's the deal. He died on the cross so that you could experience forgiveness. He rose from the dead so that you could experience a brand new kind of life. Give your life to Christ today. You can do that. And if you are a follower of Jesus, what we get to do is kind of crack ourselves open and go, God, here we are. I'm committed to you. I am. But is there a spot in my life? Is there a, a section of my life? Is there some sector or some place, some some little part of my pie chart, if you will, that is not committed to you? If so, I want to give that to you today. I want to give it to you today. And I want to leverage not only everything that I have, but everything that I am for the sake of the kingdom that is coming. You open yourself up and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a song in just a moment of response. Give you a moment to ponder what God may have said specifically to you. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Um, By your Holy Spirit, Father, would you please um, speak in the ways that we need to be spoken to and don't let us up. Um, My sense of things is that some of us are feeling a little bit of that right now. Don't let us up. Let that pressure shape us. Let the way that you have spoken move us. Let it change the way that we think. May it reshape the affections that we have. May it reorder the loves that are in our heart. May our priorities reflect yours. And I pray for anyone in here or watching online who doesn't know you. God, would you bring them to yourself? Draw them to yourself so that they would commit their life to you. Do that now for Jesus' sake. And we pray in his name. Amen.